Do you ever sit down to watch an action flick and all of a sudden there's a scene that's so crazy you stop eating your popcorn because you're trying to figure out how they did it? That happened to us the other day during a screening of the movie Kin, starring James Franco, Miles Truitt, and Zoe Kravitz. Well, there wasn't any popcorn when it happened to us because it was a press screening, but otherwise it happened just like that. So, in anticipation of the film's release, which is today, we interviewed the directors, brothers Josh and Jonathan Baker, about how they did the stunts, came up with the plot, and pulled off that scene. Also on this episode, technology editor Alex George talks gaming computers, home editor Roy Berenson helps Peter Martin figure out what's causing a leak in his new house, and we test out a pair of glasses that are supposed to help you with your posture? As always, I'm your host Jacqueline Detweiler, and you're listening to the most useful podcast ever. We have with us here today Jonathan and Josh Baker, who are the directors of Kin, which Peter and I just saw yesterday. It's a very fun movie. It is out today, and we are excited that you guys are here. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us. Peter, I feel like you had some pretty stupid questions that were kind of fun. Let's get the stupid ones out of the way. Hopefully hopefully it doesn't go downhill from here. Like, those are your (laughs) stupid ones? So if you're both directing, who yells cut? Wow, that's a very good question. Original question? I would say it's either. Right? Or does one of you get action and then the other the other? That's like, very right, interesting. I get, I get... It's rare for a director to be the only one to say action. Yeah. It's nobody else's role to say cut. <laughs> if someone else says cut, there's a problem. <laughs> there's a political problem on set. I'm that sure it needs to be taken care of. I'm sure of. it's happened many times, but that's a problem. So yeah, either of us, maybe stereo, maybe. <laughs> you just won two. Look, we've definitely done that. There were moments where we just went, you know, a take would ride for 12 minutes and then right. you go and cut at exactly the yeah, same time. And you're like, that's, that's weird. That's how you know it's perfect. That's the that's twin weird. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should mention that you guys are twins. So we are. Yes. How did you get into sci-fi? Is sci-fi your initial interest in this topic, or was it something else and then you got to the sci-fi? That's another good question. I'd say it's our taste level, right? We watch a lot of sci-fi. We like that stuff. We definitely grew up with a lot of sci-fi, and I think that stuff probably designed the way we look at film in a lot of ways. A lot of the science fiction we like is more grounded stuff. It's more clashing in a very real sort of world. Things like Ex Machina, for instance, there's obviously science fiction, but it's very relatable and and it's about something else. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was very important to us to do our version of grounded sci-fi for this one. And yeah, so this movie really focuses on this weapon, which is incredible. It's a, a little boy who finds a weapon and gets into some trouble with it. But I saw the short as well. And yeah. the short came before the movie. How did you come up with the weapon? Why was that? Well, the whole the thing? thing came from us saying... We're really interested in doing our version of, say, Sword in the Stone. What if you've got a kid and he's the only one who could wield the most crazy ray gun from another planet? And also, like, let's take something that almost feels completely ridiculous and put it in a very grounded, realistic setting and treat everything very serious. What would that look like? Yeah. Yeah. Funny you mentioned the Sword in the Stone because when we watch the movie, there is that moment when it's like, oh, wait a second, there's something about this kid. It's sort of the first time that it occurs to you. He's not just a kid who found something cool. There's something else going on. Yeah, Yeah. it's not just a movie about a kid and a weapon, but on its surface level, obviously, that's a big part of it. But it's also about the relationship between the two. I mean, the technology almost plays a character in the film, and they do have this very sort of close connection that he's not really aware whether it's going to take him down an evil path or a good path. We talked a lot about Frodo and the Ring as well as being a very similar sort of dynamic. Yeah, ultimately it's about choosing the type of person you want to be. And this kid is coming out of being a kid and turning into maybe a man. He's 14 years old and it's a very pinnacle part of his life. And this weapon rocks up 
and it's like, do you want to be a good guy or a bad guy? Right. And he has two pretty different influences in his life. Very absolutely, true. absolutely. His brother, and then the new stripper with a heart of gold. <laughs> yeah, for sure, well, for sure. Well, firstly, in the family, he's adopted into this family, and so he does have these two male influences in his life, one being a very hardworking blue collar, trying to keep the family afloat, and his mom is not around anymore, and his brother is coming out of prison after six or seven years, and they're getting to know each other. Yeah, we see it very much that one is a destroyer and the other is a builder. And so you can see that Dennis Quaid plays a character that's in construction and he's trying to turn Detroit into something different. And so there's a positive influence in his life and there's a negative. And pretty much anything Jimmy touches turns to... Yeah, his character, I feel like there were a lot of times that I was like, how's this going to end positively? And it's actually a very tricky character to get audiences on side with. Let's be honest, it is Eli's movie. But Jimmy plays a big key part in that. And you need to feel like he's redeemable at the end. And he's making it really hard for us to feel that way. Yeah. To talk a little bit, there's a scene toward the end, which is a freeze frame that is pretty incredible. How did you do that? Well, let's try to talk about this without giving too much away. Yeah. So practical is a bit of a buzzword in the film industry. And you hear a lot of people talk about that on DVDs and in interviews. We wanted to go the practical route rather than the CG route. And there is a, a medium level of CG in this film. Like, we've got some really good effects. Kind of has to be when people disappear into puffs of Yeah, dust. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It's hard to do that practically. But, but I think we took a practical route to get to most of that stuff. And I think what interests us most as directors when you're doing those kind of effectsy things is to start from a place that's real, as real as possible. If you can do 90% of it, do it real. And then sweeten it up with some nice CG. There are plenty of films that we all know that create an entire scene from just two actors standing in front of a giant green screen and replacing the depth of an entire cityscape or whatever out there. And it is one way of making movies. It's just not what we love because a lot of your trust is going into a, a completely different side of movie making which is like hundreds of people in the post side of things basically making what your movie is and it's easy for that to fall into something that feels a little wrong a little expected so it's nice to as directors go out especially with your first film and really choose textural locations and your cast and the wardrobe and all of these things work together to create a very grounded realistic setting yeah was any of the glass suspended? Were the yeah, people no, have the no, actors no, no, no. who so, were held so, in the so, air? So, wanna... The glass was definitely CG. There's a lot of stuff towards the end that is CG. But one thing, what you talked about is this frozen thing was done for real. So everyone essentially is just standing still. And you probably don't get that from seeing it, but it's true. Like if you hung the shot for a little longer, you'd probably see someone blank. Yeah, we created basically rigs that were made of very thin bits of wire and we painted that stuff out. But everything facially and everything with limbs are all just frozen. And it will blow your mind when you're looking through the edit of the actual footage that we shot of how you're starting to see little blinks and And quivers. You just take a small piece and you're like, that's just an actor holding a position. It was very specific that we wanted to do that in one shot. And so if you watch it again, the camera comes around and reveals everything and all of that's done in one. And so it was very tricky to do. But once you get it right, you're like, yeah, we nailed it. In terms of actually designing the weapon, did you go to a firm or how did you do that? Bagman was the instigator of all of this. So we created something for the short film that we were happy with. That was created by the team at Legacy Effects, who have done everything from the Iron Man suit to uh, Avatar, mechs, and like they're the greatest. And when it came time to actually evolve this for the feature film, 
we were saying it's rare to actually get a second shot at something. So you get to look at it and go, how can we improve things? And so, yeah, some of the lines, the way light plays off the lines and the shape of the weapon and things like that, we adjusted. It was actually designed by a bunch of friends of ours that works at a place called Super Vixen in Sydney. We used to work together. And one of the joys of a project like this is you get to bring in the highlights of your career and say, oh, let's do something with those guys. And those guys were great. Let's work with them. And so these two guys from Super Vixen designed the rifle for the first shot. And then we had a second shot for the feature, which... And, really and it's great. something that we really wanted to be practical. Again, a prop that has weight to it. You know, it's a character. So we need the kid to be able to hold this thing and feel the weight of it. And, and when up. he's holding it out to like feel like this is heavy, I need to put this down. Yeah. There is a discovery element to right. the weapon. Like what we loved about it was that it closes up to basically be a metal box. And that's how it was found. Yeah, and if you found it laying on the ground, you'd look at it and go, I don't really know this, what I'm right? doing with right. this. He sees a symbol on the side, he rubs his thumb across it, that sort of does something, I won't give things away. And then it ultimately opens up in a bunch of different segments and has right. different modes. And so there is an exploratory aspect to it. It was really fun to actually sit down and go, how can we design some kind of space weapon that you've never seen before? And at the end of the day, we got to something that had a unique shape that we can own, which is kind of great. I'll say certainly on film. We haven't seen it on film. Yep. We might have seen it in video games and comic books. It's kind of reminiscent of Cable's gun yeah, in uh, true. Marvel comics. So we have a new section in the magazine actually called Stunt of the Month where we're covering really cool stunts from oh, upcoming cool. films. Great. Were there any in this film that you would say were the most impressive? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, one specifically where a costumed character jumps from three stories and then takes it in the legs and lands perfectly and we did it on set for real and he was on a wire decelerator rig and it was really hard to stick it so that when he landed he took it in the knees it's like and, a gymnast at the olympics and, it's then, like... and then stumbled to the side and so we only got one take where he nailed it and then looked up perfectly and did everything he needed to do another one that we did was a similar character driving a motorbike towards the hood of a car and he puts it into a skid, slams into the side, rolls across the hood, and keeps walking. That's in the trailer. Yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. little things like that. We're not a huge blockbuster movie, so there is little elements that you don't want to do over the top so it's not realistic in this kind of a toned movie. But you are trying to sort of stretch your legs and do fun things. I think what John's talking about was the main challenge of the entire film, that we're dealing with two things. There's two tones on this film. There's kind of an indie spirit to a lot of this family drama and you have to treat that very seriously and then you've got these giant sci-fi elements that have to weave their way into the film and they need to work together and that's i guess what we wanted to that's a challenge with. sometimes i mean you've got a crew that's shooting one character silent in a hotel bathroom and then another scene you flipping cars and doing crazy big blockbuster stuff so sometimes even getting the same crew on the level is challenging so when they break into the well, yes, when something happens, no, 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 you, no, no, no. When, they, when they when they break into the building at the end, yeah, yeah that is a very secure building. Yep. Yes, the saw that the guy breaks out to get in. Does somebody go and look and say, "Here's how that would probably be built. Here's the kind of saw you would need to cut through Absolutely, the outside yeah. of it." Yeah, um, sure. It yeah. seems like a crazy specialty. It was one of those things where you've got a props guy on your movie, and he's pretty knowledgeable about all that stuff. 
and you start talking out loud throughout the pre-production and just say, look, we're going to need to bust into this door and we need these guys to be able to do it. What would they need? Authenticity is important to us and most people working on a film set, certainly props masters and guys like that, they really dive in and care about that kind of thing. Yeah. But here's an example, something that we wrote into the script and is in the movie we're super proud of. We have a gunfight at the end of the film and the characters that are involved in this gunfight pull out hearing protection and putting it in. And it's something we've personally never seen in a movie before. And I've actually heard people say like automatic weapons in a gunfight would be so loud. It would blow you out. Your eardrums are gone. You would need hearing protection. We're just like, why wouldn't these guys that have done this kind of thing before put them in just before they open up with a chain-fed machine gun? And so and there is like, that moment where they walk in and one guy's literally palm up with hearing protection and guys are just like, yeah, thanks, man. And they put it in and they start. And that's in the movie. Awesome. Yeah, it, it is very realistic. I thought it, we both really liked it a lot. Oh, that's awesome. So again, thank you, Jonathan and Josh Baker, for stopping by the podcast room. Real pleasure. Listeners, if you want to go see Kin, it is out tonight, and it is a fun little movie, so check it out. And listen again. Yeah, and then it's come back and listen to us again. So I feel like Alex George hasn't been on the podcast lately talking about tech. You've been on a couple times, but not talking about tech. No, I guess it's been a little while. Summer's kind of slow for this stuff. I mean, you know, you got a couple of announcements here and there, like Samsung's new phone and Apple's new operating system, stuff like that. But other than that, it's a little bit of a slow time. They usually save everything for the fall. Oh, sneaky. I know you've been working on a story about computers, gaming computers in particular, with a couple of members of our staff. I mean, I guess I understand why you need gaming computers, because they need to be stronger. (laughs) Kind of, yeah. They have to be more powerful. Is that the thing? It's such deep waters. So basically, this was an attempt to take this world that's mostly known to people inside it, meaning people like Ninja or Dr. Disrespect, or like the guys who are big Twitch streamers who stream, play video games online. You might as well be speaking another language to me right now. What is a Twitch streamer, first of all? Twitch is this video website, kind of like YouTube, where lots of different types of acts use it, but it's mostly for video game players. So what they'll do is there'll be a video feed of the player's head in the lower corner, and then the main part of the screen will be what that person is playing. I guess the biggest thing that happened this year was this kid named Ninja, who's a top-ranked Fortnite player. Okay. Fortnite Fortnite is a game? That's another game, yeah. It's this online multiplayer game that's taken over the world. Okay. He played a game with Drake that was, like, the highest simultaneous views of anything, and an event like that, yeah, that's like the top ranking. That's wild. That's the highest there. ranking video on Twitch or like... Yeah, on Twitch. I think the metrics are a little tough, uh-huh. but simultaneous views for a game, I forget the exact number, but, you know, it's something insane in the realm of like NBA finals and just wow. all these traditional sports. I feel like I've seen ads actually for things like the finals of gaming something or other. Yeah, Overwatch, which is another game. They had a championship here in New York City a little while ago, too. There were billboards for it everywhere. That is crazy to me yeah. that that's a thing. Okay, so these people who are in this subculture know what kind of computer they need to play these games. But we do not, and now you do. It took a lot of talking to people. And Who'd you call? Game developers and talking to the companies that make the different components. And basically what it comes down to is computers that are made for gaming have this part called a GPU, which is the graphics processing unit. Okay. It looks like a piece of circuit board. What it does is... It just repeatedly does the same calculations over and over again. And that's really good for making a 3D world that you can move around in, that you can see basically what all these games are. Uh Short of maybe editing video, it's about the toughest thing you can do on a computer. 
Is playing a video playing game. Playing a video game. Right. So yeah, they have computers specifically made to make these graphics work really well. Okay. So these computers that have these big graphics processing units, that is like the forefront of it. What a lot of people will do is they'll buy the GPU, they'll buy these separate parts off the shelf, the motherboard, the casing, power supply, cooling units, and build their own. There's also this realm of pre-made models that's like how somebody would who doesn't want to learn entirely how to do that, right. uh, can get into it. And that's what we were looking at. Okay, right. So you weren't trying to build your own computer. No, that was the idea, is that these are kind of an alternative for it. You kind of have to start around $800, and what you get is basically like a tower computer from the 90s, but uh-huh. you know, but but more a little bit sleeker, yeah, and more okay. powerful. And what brand was that one? So there's a whole bunch of different ones. Dell, another 90s name. They oh. make a really good introductory one that's called the Dell XPS Tower SE. There's another one called the MSI Trident 3 that was really awesome. It looks kind of like a video game console. It's really nice and compact. That one starts at like 900 bucks. And pretty much for all of these, you buy the computer itself, and then some of them come with a keyboard and mouse, but then you have to buy the monitor yourself, and then wow. you're probably upgraded. Yeah, it gets, I mean, you're spending, Expensive. you're dipping into four figures pretty quickly. So why not just use, like you mentioned that some of them look like an Xbox or like a gaming system. Why not just use that? These kind of computers are made for the Call of Duty and like Which player is like a, That's like a first-person shooter game. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Really quick, really high-intensity graphics, that kind of a thing. A game called The Witcher 3 that's like goblins and orcs and uh. all that, you know, <laughs> vaguely medieval but with magic and dragons okay. kind of game. Okay. That's awesome and it looks really beautiful and the sunset looks really vibrant and the world looks really convincing. But where it gets really complicated once you get into things like FPS, which is frames per second, versus Hertz, which is like the refresh cycle for the monitor. Then you talk about something called G-Sync and FreeSync, which are these ways that the graphics card talks directly to the monitor. It gets into this pretty geeky stuff like this that you really have to have some knowledge of it before you start buying. Cool. Well, what would you recommend to somebody who's just getting started in this? I mean, obviously, they should read your article in the upcoming issue of Popular Mechanics. But other than that, what else? Remember when uh, like the MacBook Air first came out and before that laptops were these big, huge, clunky... I had you know, one. I had a Dell laptop that was clunky as heck. Yeah. And then that one came out and now a lot of them kind of look like that. There's a yeah. lot of new gaming PCs that are pretty small and don't look obnoxiously like a big gray box or black box or right. something like that. This company called Origin makes one called the Kronos. That was a really cool one. You can get it decked out for about 1200 bucks. MSI, the Trident 3 looks really cool. It's nice and compact and Everything's packed in there really well, and it has all the horsepower you need. So those were two of my favorites that we tested. You don't have to go full out with the monitor, but like a Dell makes a really great monitor that we mentioned there. Can they also do basic things like surfing the internet and Word and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, that was a question that came up. So these are computers, computers. right? They are. Okay. They just all run Windows, and that's something also worth mentioning is that Macs don't have the GPU, the graphics stuff that we're talking about that make it run really well. So uh the newer ones have... External GPUs that work that a little bit better, but in general, Macs aren't built for something like this. If you get one of these, you're running Windows, and basically it is a computer. It's a functioning Windows computer, but it's set up specifically to make graphics look really pretty. Right. Cool. Well, thanks for testing those. I bet it was really hard work. I think a lot of people are going to want your job after listening to this. That was a good couple of weeks, yeah. Time again for your favorite segment, Quack Facts. Quack Facts. Quack Facts. What is fun to say? Can you guys quack? Quack, 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 quack. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so when you said Quack Facts, I immediately went to like 
doctors who aren't really doctors. Like I didn't go to ducks first. I was just like, oh, this is like quacks and people. But the term quack for a medical imposter actually came about (laughs) from the old Dutch word quacksalver. Wow. Quacksalver? What does that mean? Like It means a hawker of self. (laughs) (laughs) So someone who like, you know, offered home remedy cures. But then apparently this became such a problem of people offering up these remedies that didn't actually work that it became a slur. Well, that was a thing back I've in the day. I've always wondered People where that came from. Remedies, yeah. 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 Quack. Interesting. Yeah, I always thought salver. it was just like a pejorative, like you're a duck. So quack salver, add it to your vocabulary. There we go. This is my favorite quack fact, Oh, though. I'm excited. Quack.com <laughs> was an early voice portal company, which was basically the earliest ever Alexa. It was in the oh. 90s, and it was the first company to try to create a voice portal, basically, where you could like say what you wanted to buy. It was a beta phone service in 1999, and you could purchase books from sites like Amazon by saying what you wanted. I think it was bought by AOL. I wonder if those guys have any money now. They're yeah. probably so mad. I'd be yeah. furious. That happens, though. People come yeah. up with things too early. I remember when I, same era, actually, I was in high school, late 90s, takeout taxi was basically seamless. You would call them, and they would get your order for whatever restaurant, and they would bring it from the restaurant to your house. It was like for restaurants that didn't deliver any other way. And it was basically seamless. That's so sad. And uh, God knows how that's doing now. Takeout yeah. Taxi. That's a pretty good name, too. Yeah. Takeout Taxi is good. Um, that's been Quack Facts. That has been Quack Facts. Awesome. So, Peter, your house sounds like a disaster, oh, honestly. Oh, oh. <laughs> no, I mean, it sounds very nice, but I feel like you're always at Roy's desk talking about of... things that are wrong with it. Yeah. Roy's and helped me a ton. Is it an old house? It is. It was built probably like late 1890s. Okay. And then it was renovated by people who paid attention some days and didn't on others. So <laughs> Roy and I have found a lot. Just where they dry fit the PVC for the HVAC unit that goes out. So the joints came back apart because they were never glued. Oh, wow. Well, that is where some of the water spots in the soffit of our cellar came from. Okay. We, there's still others that are there that we can't find yet. So that's what I heard is that you've got water spots. Is it on the ceiling of your basement? Is that where it is? Yeah. Okay. And farther down the wall, we think that's because the metal studs channel the water and it just runs down. It was finding another like oh. a drip through a screw hole. There's a main area that we think it's coming from. We just don't know where the source is above that. Wow. So how, I mean, you went to Roy with this, I know, because I sit next to Roy and I <laughs> you get heard you guys, overheard you guys talking the other day and I was like, you guys need to talk about this on the podcast. <laughs> Roy, when someone comes to you and says... There's water stains on my ceiling. What's the first step to figuring out what's causing that? Yeah, good question. Yeah, it's every homeowner's nightmare, you know, the coffee-colored stain that appears. But some basics. So you find a water stain on the ceiling. If the stain is closer to the outside wall of the house, very often the source is from the outside, not the inside. If the stain is closer to the inside of the dwelling, chances are it's an inside job. So you find a stain and it's in the center of your ceiling. Normally what happens is that structural member in the ceiling called a floor joist, or if you're below the attic, it's called a ceiling joist. You get a water leak inside the house and normally a bathroom is the first place you start looking. Shower stalls, bathtubs, water running down the wall, hits some sort of place in the wall where there's a hole, like a control knob or something for your tub or shower. Mm -hmm. So the water hits there, gets behind it, runs down, somehow collects at a point, and it will run. And very often it'll come out at an electrical light fixture. It'll hit the... Oh, that sounds bad. 
Well, it is. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. bad. Yeah. You have an electrical box there that interrupts the flow. I've actually done this where, you know, you crawl into some space with a flashlight and you can actually see the water running along the bottom of the joist. Anyway, so you see this the little river of water running down and it'll hit an electrical box or it'll just hit the center, the lowest point in the joist. And there's normally a nail there going through the drywall or the plaster, you know, the plaster's lath and it'll drip. And it'll soak out the drywall or something. So you gotta you gotta work uphill to find those likely spots. And it always takes some detective work. You gotta look behind the toilet. You gotta look in the bathtub area very carefully. And what are you looking for? You're looking for a hole? Yeah, yeah. I mean okay. you're looking for a hole, a gap of some kind. If the toilet is loose, let's say. Oh, that sounds uh, not well, good. yeah, no, again, it's all fairly common. All this stuff. sounds not good. <laughs> right. Yeah. You look for condensation if the house is not properly air-conditioned. It's very moist in the summertime. Maybe there's excessive condensation forming on the toilet or on cold water pipes. Uh-huh. And that water drips, 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 gets to a low spot. You know, normally it takes an awful lot of condensation. So other likely sources are recent remodeling jobs. Very common for a nail or a screw to puncture a piece of copper tubing. In one case that I'm familiar with, a drywall screw punctured a copper tube, and it very, very slowly saturated a plaster ceiling in the downstairs of the house, and it just collapsed. The entire 10-foot section of plaster ceiling came down in the dining room in the middle of the night. How did you figure out yours? So we have a rental apartment downstairs, and the tenants heard a noise downstairs, and actually like the coffee stain showed up on the drywall in the soffit. We opened it up underneath the tub. They'd put a plastic bag to catch the drips, seal around the tub and everything. We hope that worked, but it's still coming. We found the obvious source. But yeah, it's just a constant stress. I was going to say, this sounds like a serious puzzle that like, if you get it so wrong, then does homeowner's insurance cover that? No. no. Our homeowner's insurance is the worst. Just because they come out and they find every reason to blame you and to tell you that it's your, your fault, fault with the workmanship, or you didn't tell us in time, and then it got worse, and so we don't cover that. Oh, wow. We had multiple leaks, and we don't even know what it was, but the hardwood floors ended up buckling, and we had to get those replaced wow. this week. That's oh, very expensive. wow. Plumbing may be a do-it-yourself activity at some levels, but at other levels, you know, requires a plumber. This isn't your fault, Peter. You didn't plumb that bathtub. I mean, an amateur person can, with due diligence, install a bathtub or a sink for that matter. There's a bit more to that than just tighten the heck out of the joints. I mean, you can actually make a joint leak by over-tightening it too. So finding the source of that coffee stain is detective work. Yeah. I would also say one of the worst things about water leaks is that they usually come from areas that are tiled and that are very hard to get into. Our entire bathroom is covered in tile, so it's not like we have a great access panel that we can open up and look. I don't even know how we'd get to the back of where the tub assembly is so we could see that just to see if anything was dripping inside there. Is there someone you could hire to help you with this? Well, plumbers, but there are, like Peter hired a leak detection company. Really? And, uh, oh, that's a thing. It is. And I read great things. People love them. It's, I mean, it's called American Leak Detection. They did not do great things for us. They really? couldn't find anything. The guy said there was no active leak. But if you put your finger on the stain on the ceiling, it's still moist. So I'm not sure with his equipment how he didn't notice that. Because they come in with a thermal gun and moisture meters and they measure stuff. He filled up our sink and had it drain with hot water from downstairs. So it would show up on his gun to see if it was leaking out anywhere. So it makes sense what they're doing. It just didn't lead to anything. And then, you know, you pay them 700 bucks to hang out in the house for a little while and send you pictures of the stuff that's already trouble. Typically, detective work begins with your most likely culprits. But there again, you know, 
other things happen too. Sometimes it's not plumbing. I just saw a case involving my oldest brother was doing some detective work. And one of the things we found in that job was that a leak in a air conditioning duct was spilling very cold air into this, pardon me, ceiling cavity. It was actually causing condensation in there. So sometimes it's a bit counterintuitive. Often when you see a coffee-colored stain occur on a wall or a ceiling near the wall, sometimes it's a wall leak. There's moisture coming into the structure from the outside. There your typical culprits are improperly what they call flashed door and window openings. So you cut a hole through the wall of the structure and you put a door or window in it. Well, flashing is the means by which that hole is sealed up. Otherwise, you just have a door or window sitting in a hole and moisture can get in between the door or the window and the edge of the hole. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I actually stayed in an apartment in uh, San Francisco, I guess because their weather is not that cold, so nobody bothered to seal things. Yeah. And you could actively see through the hole between like the <laughs> door and the hole around the door. Yeah, it it's, crazy. Horrible. it's horrible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, lack of flashing and improper flashing is an invitation for water to enter the wall of the structure. Right. Well, hopefully that isn't happening to you at home. It is happening to Peter. But we'll, we'll have an update and see how you're doing. Just have recurring updates. Like, Peter, do you still have a leak in your ceiling? <laughs> well, we'll, yes. we'll find it. We'll find it one way or the other. Cool. I'm done. For this week's testing table, Peter and Kevin have been trying out a weird pair of glasses. I'm, a was just calling a weird pair of glasses, but then I found out what the real name is, and it sounds <laughs> Orwellian. It really does. What are they? They're called Eyeforcer. <laughs> the and they actually look pretty good on Kevin. They, I'm wearing them right now. I thought those were your real glasses, actually. Uh -huh. Do you wear glasses? I do. I mean, I, I wear contacts and glasses. I probably do 50-50. If it weren't for the iForcer logo on the side, they're nice-looking glasses. Yeah. yeah. I think they, yeah, I think they look fine. They're like matte black and squarish. They also sell them in a tortoise. Oh, so do they? I, maybe if I had tried those, it would look better. But I felt too dumb in them, so I gave them to You have more tortoise <laughs> coloring. I think so. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So what do they do? Why are they called that terrible name? Well, so they are supposed to help with text neck how we all walk around on our phones. This morning on the way to the subway, this is sad and funny at the same time, I was following a woman who was looking at her phone. She stepped in a hole and she fell down. Oh, <laughs> so, no. It's a real problem. Aside. That is what you, I mean, especially in the subway, you could really get hurt. Yeah. You don't know what you're going to find down there. She seemed more embarrassed than hurt. And then she got back up and just kept on her phone. So no real lesson learned. You could like fall down get trapped and get eaten by rats. I That's mean, like once you've suffered the humiliation, you might as well just keep doing what you're doing on your phone. <laughs> and then you have to text your friends like, I just fell down. I don't know yeah. if anybody saw me. <laughs> But the force that it puts on your neck are pretty bad because I always look down. It's in my lap pretty much. Kevin and I were talking about riding the subway every day. You read the news and you're just looking down into your lap holding your hand because you feel kind of weird. You're supposed to hold it out in front of your face. But then so, everyone thinks you're taking pictures of them. True. Right. And it also makes your arm tired. Well, yeah. It's um, really tiring. But that doesn't put any stress on your neck. So iForcer has this little chart about all the different weights that go on your neck. I'm going to read to you guys some numbers from those charts. This is going to stress me out maybe. Um, I don't know. So standard... It's like 10 to 12 pounds of force on your neck if your tilt is at zero degrees. Is it so it's like the weight of the average head? Seems like it would Wait, be. Wait, I thought, pounds. wasn't it eight pounds? I thought the brain weighed eight pounds from Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire, that's like, yeah. all, that's like the only thing I remember from Jerry I've Maguire. I've actually never seen And Jerry show Maguire. me the money. So weight of the head plus hair. Plus hair. <laughs> no, if the brain was eight pounds, your skull makes 12. That and also sense. there is a little angle to your neck, and so maybe that's introducing a couple maybe. extra pounds of force. Maybe. Right? Yeah. All right. Based on Jerry Maguire, this is already a suspect product. But so then 
increase that by 15 degrees, it's 27 pounds of force. When you get up to 60 degrees, which honestly is like the 60, poor old guys you see walking on canes who are totally... Like, what is... What even is that? Those guys are like from the back. You can't even tell they have a head. Yeah. 60, yeah, 60 pounds of pressure. So oh. anyway, bad for you. Adds pressure. That means my head is 60 pounds right now. <laughs> so what you're saying is if I put an additional like 50 pounds on my head while I was standing up, it would put the same amount of force? I don't know. It's just adding to the curvature. If that you're doing that, that every day for that hours of time... Yeah. I've had like a day here and there where my neck has hurt a lot. Yeah. And sometimes I'm really nervous that it's because I'm just looking at it all the time. Because I read my full like half an hour on the train each way, reading the entire time. Yeah. Mm. And so this, the trick is it has a little LED light by the right temple. And so when you go below 15 degrees, 15 the, the standard or You 25? can change it. Yeah, the default's 25, but okay. you can set the angle that you want. So if you want to be really tough on yourself, you could go 15 and then it'll always just shine. It's not bad. It just flashes you yeah, actually seem like you've gotten used to it. There's an LED on the right temple, and it's pretty subtle. And you can change the color. I tried the other colors. I think red is the best one. So it flashes in your eye? It's just right here. What so, if you look down so, so wait, where, can Where's see right it. here? for? Our, oh, whoa, okay. Just right up at the hinge it's of right, the lens and yeah, the arm. Yeah, yeah. So it is subtle enough when I was riding the subway home yesterday that with, you know, you're going through tunnels and there's lights and station lights and everything. It actually was hard to notice mm. the red light with uh, all the other lights. I mean, this is a pretty New York-y problem, but uh-huh. yeah, it is subtle. The one thing that I found was that you don't realize how many things you do during the day. You where just, it just, just, you just did with your head. <laughs> yeah. So what I've realized is that you kind of really just need to turn it on in situations where, where you're, you're worried about where you're reading. When he, Peter first gave them to me, I was sitting at my desk and I was looking down at the keyboard and like notes I'd taken and looking up and it was going off like crazy. But it also connects to your phone. You can choose to not do this. But if you choose to. It'll give you a push notification. It just uh, says like poor posture alert or something. It says so stop I sitting like that, you jerk. Right. <laughs> right. But I literally had like 17 straight notifications on my phone. So I realized I have to turn it off while I'm working. I right. thought you were going to say the one thing you noticed about it was that other people noticed the red light. Because you came in, we were talking to Ryan, and he was just like, what sort of cyborg? Yeah, he's like, are you wearing AI happening? glasses? When I came home yesterday, I was wearing them because I'd been on the subway, and my girlfriend was like, what are those? Is there a sniper? Is there a sniper? (laughs) So this is different than I thought this was. When you said eye forcer, I thought there was going to be like a system of mirrors, some sort of lens that would reflect something in your lap up into like so that you could Oh, so you wouldn't even have to move to see what was down there. Right. I thought it was some sort of weird lens like that. Because this is more like an eye suggester than an eye forcer. (laughs) True. It's true. We should also point out the lenses have some blue light blockering qualities to them. So if you want to wear them in front of your computer, it helps with eye strain and fatigue. And how much do these cost? They're a lot. Which Kevin and I couldn't figure out exactly why they were this much. They're two hundred and forty dollars. Ooh! You can add prescription lenses to it. That's got to put even more on the. It's two hundred forty for the frames, and then if you put your prescription oh, wow. lenses in there. How much are standard? I don't wear glasses. So how well, much standard... so the Warby Parker is like right a hundred to one hundred and fifty. They have like some styles that are more expensive, but is that with prescription lenses? I can't remember. I think yes. I'm pretty sure. I yes. I think it is. Yeah, but it gets more expensive pretty quickly. I actually think two fifty is not. For this, if it's something where you're actually worried about, and because they're pretty decent looking glasses, right. if you get your prescription in them, I actually think it's not that bad of a deal. I would consider it. Really? Yeah. Can you replace the battery? You probably can. It's, it's a, a, you charge with USB. Oh, you charge it. Oh, yeah. okay. It has and a little I, on-off switch, so when Kevin was talking about if you wanted to turn it, it's pretty yeah, easy just right to on your temple, flip it to off. I can see the on-off switch so, when I look at you. That is actually my question for you, because you were the one who found these. Do you know how new it is? Because I suspect that in one design iteration, they probably make the switch less noticeable and maybe get the logo off. Because I feel like if you took the logo off the temple and hid the switch better, they'd be completely fine looking glasses. Because nobody's going to see that logo and say, what are you wearing? Can I get some of those? Yeah, (laughs) right, exactly. (laughs) Uh, So would you buy them? No, I had to take them off right away just because it was bothering me the way Kevin was saying. That's the thing, even looking down at your keyboard is probably bad for your posture. 
to see things, but you're not holding your head down there the whole time. But yeah, it was not for me. It was a little too much money. I know I should be doing it, but I don't need the glasses to remind me. Right. It's basically just, I need to remember. I need to want to do it more. Right. Yeah. And you don't wear glasses, right? So I don't wear glasses. So I, I probably wouldn't do it just because I don't feel like I need to add something to my life that I thankfully have escaped thus far because eventually I'm going to need bifocals or whatever anyway. And I might as well like hold off as long as I can. It's a good idea. I feel yeah. like we all need the reminder. I just am not ready to pay that much for the reminder. Yeah. Me either, probably. But Kevin would. Yeah, I think so. If they change the design just enough to make it a little less obvious that there's something weird happening, I would just turn it on when I was reading. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And maybe they should change the name to I Suggester. (laughs) (laughs) That's our show, y'all. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Brandcasters, Inc. at www.brandcastingu.com. We'd like to thank Bettina Warshaw and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about life hacks, projects, science, and technology, check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening. 